COVID-19. Weekly Digest. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty and over the next hour we look back at the week that was in the world of COVID-19. It's Friday night and I'm here in the Department of Health on Dublin's Bagot Street where the Chief Medical Officer has just brought us the latest COVID-19 figures. Sadly, 11 more people have died, bringing the overall death toll to 1,592. 115 more cases of the virus have also been diagnosed, bringing the number of confirmed cases to 24,000. Today is the first day in a week that the number of daily confirmed cases has gone above 100. Chief Medical Officer Dr Tony Holohan says the increase in cases isn't down to lifting some restrictions this week. So in a word, no. Uh, it is too early to tell. These are cases in effect which, rec- which, which, which relate to uh, exposures, contacts that would have happened prior to Monday of this week, uh, which is the easing of measures. The restrictions as part of Phase 1 were lifted on Monday and included the reopening of garden centres, hardware stores, electrical shops, opticians, car garages, golf courses and tennis courts, all with strict social distancing. These shoppers I spoke to queuing outside Woody's in Dundalk couldn't wait to buy products for their garden. Brilliant. More for my husband's sanity than anything because he's happy with it. He does the garden and so, yeah, he was waiting on plants and... We were well kitted out because, of course, we're, we're nervous of everything you have to do with your told. The plan is he does all the work when we go yeah. home. Get it all sorted out, get okay. the wine in, the barbecue going and relax and enjoy the smells. Phase two of the lifting of restrictions is due to happen on June 8th. We learned tonight they'll now likely include some easing of measures for children and their parents. Several government departments are working with public health doctors to try ease the burden on families. Dr Tony Hullahan says they won't be revealing yet, however, what measures could be lifted for children. We'll want to ensure that our public health advice in relation to any of the activities that might be under consideration by, by them and other government departments has the benefit of early public health uh, advice and we'll continue to work with other colleagues uh, to try and, as it were, shape those things up. But I won't give, as it were, a day-by-day account of our, of our, of our thinking in relation to that. It'll be all framed uh, in whatever advice we provide back to government. And some of the other phases in the roadmap for reopening the country could be fast-tracked if it's safe to do so. Taoiseach Leo Vradkar told News Talk Breakfast about this on Thursday morning. I'd like to be in a situation where we can accelerate the reopening of the country, but it's far too soon to make that call because we still don't know what the impact is of the easing of the restrictions that happened this Monday. And we won't know that really until the first week in June. So before we can make any call on moving to phase two, or even perhaps you know, bringing forward some of the, um, some of the relaxations, we'll need to see that data first. And Now, from next Thursday, it'll be an offence for anyone arriving into the country not to fill in a locator form spelling out where they'll be self-isolating. There'll be spot checks done to make sure people are isolating. The penalties for non-compliance will be a maximum six months in jail or a fine of €2,500. However, it won't apply to people coming from Northern Ireland. Health Minister Simon Harris says it's a move in the right direction as we move through the phases of the roadmap. From next week... Passengers arriving into Ireland from overseas will be legally required to present a completed public health passenger locator form. 
Putting this form on a mandatory footing will facilitate a system of follow-up checks to make sure that people who travel to this country, wherever they come from, are staying where they say that said that they would. While much of the talk this week has been about lifting restrictions and reopening the country, we did have a very serious word of caution from Professor Philip Nolan, who chairs the modelling group, looking at how COVID is spreading across the country. He warns a second wave of the virus here could be a case of not if but when, and we have very little immunity here because 1% of the population may have been infected by the coronavirus. Fewer than 5% of the population and probably as low as 1% of the population, seroprevalence studies will show. At right now, we estimate that a very low proportion of the population has been exposed to this virus. That means there is no immunity out there. So if the virus begins to transmit again in the population, the virus will transmit freely. One of the big talking points this week was about whether workers could have to limit their interactions in the workplace to no more than two hours. It all started when former HSE boss Tony O'Brien raised concerns about the chief medical officer and others appearing before a dull committee for several hours on Tuesday. Then the health minister said advice, stating that TDs can't spend any longer than two hours in the dull chamber on any given day, is only specific to the Oroctus as a workplace. That was after the court service said it was limiting court sittings to no more than two hours before publishing expert advice showing the service had been advised there was no need to limit court sessions to two hours and they could resume conducting sittings for longer than that. This week's twists and turns led to confusion for workers and employers who didn't know if they could go into work as normal or if the whole building would have to close down if someone had coronavirus. Deputy Chief Medical Officer Dr Ronan Glynn confirmed though that the two-hour limit is just guidance for public health doctors. There's no rule that says you can't be in a room with somebody for 30 minutes or for four hours. There's many businesses where people have to be in the same room for more than two hours at a time. The guidance is simply used by public health doctors to risk assess people in those settings to say, okay, unfortunately, there's been a confirmed case. You were in a room with that person for more than two hours. And unfortunately, that means you now need to stay at home. Now, yet another debate has broken out relating to education. Earlier this week, Dr David Nabarro, WHO Special Envoy for COVID-19, said it's time to think about reopening schools in this country. Kira Kelly spoke to a number of teachers and parents on Wednesday who gave their view. Um, I suppose the big thing for us is that we, we are dying to be back with the kids. Like, we want to be back with them, but... The reality is that we have to be careful and be safe about it because okay. as much as the studies are saying that children aren't catching the virus, we are adults teaching in the schools. You could have 80 adults teaching in a school. You know, we have to be quite careful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of the solutions that are being suggested are actually quite good, um, but there's always going to be criticism. But it's not going to go back to normal. Um, like we had in some of our classes 36 kids yeah, in huge. a small classroom there's no way that they're going to be able to socially distance as a full room you know yep I do Um, do you think Sorka though that you know pressing the green light for September means that we'll have to trial and error certain things in September and we might not get back to normal school till the new year Um, would we not be better off doing something now we've almost six full weeks of, of school left for primary school kids, would we not be better off bringing them in in a staggered way now to kind of learn what works and what doesn't? Um, I suppose as well, like, I would say yes, only that there's still the outbreak going on. And if you have a child coming from a family who's been affected by it, it's not ideal. And you have teachers as well who could be immunocompromised, pregnant. 
you know, they're they're not really supposing that they could be. No, and, and you're absolutely right. But that's true of every workplace that, you know, so. So and I think the advice is very clear that anyone who is from a family that, that there might be a case, they self-isolate. So they aren't to go to school. And indeed, people who are immunocompromised are cocooners. So they won't be back in the school. So so those those are the exceptions and they, they shouldn't be in, in the school. You're, you're quite right. People who, who might be uh, contacts or might have the virus, they shouldn't be there. But, you know, that's the same for every single other workplace that's currently open. If, if that's taken as a given, then would it be OK to bring, do you think, kids in and, and see what works for, for teachers and see what, what works for children? Look, I'd say potentially if they had a situation where it was very clear how they're going to manage the safety, then sure. Um, But if it was a situation where they haven't been clear about it, which they haven't been particularly clear about it with people so far, and especially if you have teachers who have now started to finish up, um, like if you have newly qualified teachers who'll be finishing up in the next couple of weeks, and uh-huh. there's no... There's no way to guarantee that it's going to be perfect, and a lot of parents won't send their kids in. Yeah, something. I think you're right on that. To gauge how we'd make it work, I personally, I'd like to see the Dutch model brought in. That they are going down, having half the class in Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, full deep clean, and then the other half Thursday, Friday. Mm -hmm. Um, because it would mean that you still get that face-to-face contact teaching, but you're guaranteed you can deep clean in between. Rather than I've seen some people suggest an AM/PM model where you teach in the morning and one half and teach in the evening. But that doesn't really give the opportunity to give that deep clean and ensure that every child is safe while also taking care of the teacher well-being. Yeah. And if if they could do something like that, Circa, supposing they could do, because uh, I don't know what model they would use, but they could use some kind of a staggered school attendance with deep cleaning and all of that. Would you be happy enough to go back? Yeah, I Personally, I, I'm dying to go back yeah. in September. Like, I just want... Oh, no, I'm talking about sooner. The, 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 like, the WHO have come out today and said Irish schools should open before September. They should open now, more or less. I would say that again, but I suppose with the phases that are going on, with the way it's laid out, if we go ahead and reopen the schools, the argument would be that we have to reopen everything else as well. Um, mm. So it would take a full programme from the government. If they gave out very specific guidelines very clear so, criteria okay. so then it, absolutely yeah. but so, otherwise there's yeah. no way but if you were given a steer that you felt confident in and clear about or whatever that would that would be the way to do it that's what you would want as a teacher yeah I think so I think just the main thing would be that my safety and the safety of my yeah. children is the priority of everything and if waiting until September to ensure that there's a clear plan and that parents are comfortable then I don't see an issue with that. Do you think it's think going to be much different though in September insofar as, just before I let you go, insofar as that um, it looks like we may be, according to all the new, you know, and there's emerging evidence, all the, it looks like we could be living alongside COVID for years. So September or June, are they any different to each other? Um, I think the, it's more a case of getting the schools equipped and ensuring that we have the materials and the PPE that we need to enter in with that level of children. Okay. Um, I think that's more the concern there is that when we're going into schools, we're going to have to learn how to distance everything in our classroom and okay. change how we teach. Yeah, so you, so you, that's you, where the real problem is you, for me. You know? There's training and all sorts needed. Look, thank you for speaking to me, Circa. I do appreciate it. Thank you for that. Circa is a primary school teacher. 53106 is the text line. And the question is this. Would you like to see the schools in Ireland open sooner? There is six weeks almost left of the primary um, school term. 
it's not nothing. I mean, we were originally locked down for two weeks and then another two weeks. We, we, we worked in weeks at that stage and we know so much more now than we did at the beginning. In the beginning, children were super spreaders. They were vectors, not victims. And now it looks like they aren't a huge source of transmission. Is, is, is that fair to say? What do you think should happen uh, to our kids? Um, the rest of Europe are sending their kids back to school. Why are Irish kids different. Uh, tell me what you think. Nicole is on the line as well. Nicole, would you prefer to see schools open sooner, later, later, sooner? Uh, sooner, okay. definitely. Tell me why. Yeah, I. Um, well, we can see now what is working in other countries that have been open for a month or a little bit more. We can see, you know, what what the effect has been on increased cases in those areas. Um, and if schools here can get uh, a proper uh, programme of hand washing, sanitising, they're fully equipped with PPE equipment, and that the government has in place uh, a very good testing, t- testing time turnaround and uh, tracking and tracing of contacts, then I don't see any reason why we can't go back at okay. the beginning of June, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if you if you if you heard. I played a little clip of it. I don't know if you heard News Talk Breakfast this morning. Doctor Doctor David Nabarro, who is a special envoy from the WHO, was on air here, and he says he thinks we should reopen. He said that he thinks school is hugely important to children and that that it is now the time to get cracking on that rather than kicking the can, I suppose, which is what we seem to be doing down the road for months, really. Yeah, as you said, COVID-19 is here and it's going to be staying here for quite a long time until we have a a widespread vaccine. So we are going to have to learn to live with it in schools and workplaces. And as you said, if there are families where there is an immunocompromised person or for other reasons they don't feel happy in sending their children back this side of the summer, then that's fine. They can stay at home. But to have schools open again for maybe a day or two a week for small groups of children uh, to try that out in the month of June and see how that works, then I think they should go ahead with that. Coming up next, Professor Luke O'Neill brings us up to speed with the latest news from the world of science. Welcome back to Weekly Digest here on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. Professor Luke O'Neill joined Pat Kenny on Wednesday morning with the very latest in the battle of science versus COVID-19. He started by discussing the rate at which new information and studies are being completed. Well, it's, Pat, it's unbelievable. I mean, as we've discussed before, I've never seen the like of this frenzy. And every day, there's like five or ten discoveries being published. I mean, normally in my business, you might get two or three papers a week you have to read. You know, Now I'm reading ten a day. So, I mean, it's fantastic. Fantastic, isn't it? Because the amount of science that's gone behind this is incredible. And the vaccine business, yeah, there's been really sort of interesting developments there. There's three vaccines now that are showing even more promise, I guess is the way to put it. They're releasing data slowly, I suppose. And we could start with the Oxford one because we spoke to Adrian Hill, didn't we? About three, was it three weeks ago now? We, it seemed like we, a month we ago. We did. Now, Luke, here, here's the issue. I mean, people reading uh, stories about the macaque monkeys that were tested, and it seems they've got great resistance to pneumonia but not such great resistance to, to COVID-19. What's the story? Yeah, the truth be told, it was slightly disappointing, Adrian's first publication on this, because now still there's good things going on, though. 
So what, what that vaccine seems to do, the one they're trying in humans as we speak, they gave it to monkeys. And it was protective to some extent. What it did was a decreased severity of disease. So the monkeys were, were given the vaccine and then infected with COVID-2. And they got less pneumonia, which is a symptom of severity with, with, uh, with COVID-19. So the lungs were somewhat protected upon re-challenge. Uh, they still saw a bit of virus in the nose and throat, so it wasn't fully efficacious. But still, if that turned out to be the case, that wouldn't be bad. I mean, the flu vaccine works in that way, actually. It sort of protects against severity. So if that turned out to be the case, it yeah. would be still a benefit. Uh, and of course, uh, and Adrian himself has said, look, it's the first step. They, they really give a high dose when they challenge those monkeys, you see. So it's a very severe kind of model anyway. But still, th there were signs of doing something very importantly, mm. no side effects, that they were looking for any kind of unwanted effects yeah. as well. They didn't see any, which is brilliant, you know. So that was, that was quite good. It wasn't, it, it, you wouldn't give them 10 out of 10, but you'd be giving them a good grade, you know, so it wasn't too yeah. bad. Now, one of the questions about this is is what they use to create uh, the vaccine. I was looking at the, the Chinese uh, effort, and you'll be talking about that in a moment, I'm sure. Uh, and they use the actual um, SARS-CoV-2 uh, DNA or RNA or whatever it was to create yeah. theirs, which is promising. Whereas Oxford used the common cold virus to create theirs. Is, is yeah. that is that a fair distinction? It is. Yeah. I mean, this, this is the challenge. There's lot different ways of doing it, you see. And nobody's fully sure which one way would be best. Uh, the, the Oxford group had shown that their uh, technology, the cold one, as you mentioned, was quite good for MERS, which is a related virus. Again, in monkeys, mind you, but still, they had promise with that, that approach, I suppose. That, that's why they went after it, I guess. And again, it was very safe. The Chinese have a slightly different technology. So that's, there's something like, I think, 12 different ways to do it if you like nobody's fully sure which might work because we're lucky aren't we as the public that they can fight between themselves <laughs> maybe one would emerge as the key one you see mm -hmm. so it's okay that these different approaches are being taken because one might be better than the other you know so that's the way to think of it yeah now what about the americans uh, the company moderna who published a press release rather than scientific data but it sent their shares up through the roof and probably brought some glee to the white house well, it was slightly naughty, Pat. This wouldn't be the normal way to do this, basically. You, you wait till all the data's in, and then you have a good look at it. You take your time, basically, and or be very careful. Obviously, we're in an emergency. So they said, look, let's release this first. But eight patients, uh, healthy people, by the way, they gave them their candidate vaccine, and they got a good, strong immune response in the people. So it's the first time, I suppose, we've seen something in humans, because the previous stuff has been in, in monkeys. Mm. And their technology is, yes, the, the RNA it's the, it's the recipe, the nucleic acid from the virus is being used there. So it's a new technology, never, never shown in humans before, by the way. So, so they really are on the front line. They've been pushing this for a few years now as a way to do it. And they got some positive results. These eight patients, they got antibodies in the patients, which is what you want. Now, that was good, Pat, because it's evidence in humans. Again, there was no side effects. If you're cautious, you go, well, look, that's too few people. Let's say one in a hundred or one in a thousand get a side effect. You wouldn't see it in that so, so small a number, you know. But still, yeah. they've jumped a fence there for definite. If they saw nothing, they'd be devastated. They go, oh, listen, this is a step backwards. So it's a, it's a baby step forward, if you like, with that. Like, an amazing fact, I think something like five billion value added to the company on the back of eight people in a trial. That's unprecedented <laughs> in this business because normally you're more cautious than that. It just shows you, you know, the appetite out there. So it was good. We, we liked that. That Moderna one was quite good. But the Chinese one is the best, Pat, because that, that's coming out in some Science, one of the most eminent journals. So again, very well refereed, if you like, by the experts. And they got a much better response than Adrian's one. They got a read. They got sterilizing immunity in their monkeys. Now, what that means is they gave them the monkeys their vaccine, and those monkeys could not be infected then on rechallenge. They couldn't detect hardly any virus. No evidence. Of
of infection because their immune system was now able to fight the virus on rechallenge. Okay. So they, they they get top marks this morning. It's like it's like children in the school. We give them five stars. We'll give Adrian maybe okay. three. Um, but still, it's good because and now again, it's monkeys. Remember the usual issues: animals are not humans, mm. and so on. No side effects again. So again, they probably have jumped two fences on this race. So that's good. So now, like the Chinese one is the most impressive so far. What's the attitude of the Chinese to sharing all of this? I mean, I know they probably feel some sort of responsibility given that the whole thing started in Wuhan. But is this going to be if they sh- will they share it with the world? In other words, because we saw the row about uh, the the Americans saying to the French company um, Sanofi, uh, you know, we're going to get it first, and Macron said, "Oh no, you're not." What about this Chinese vaccine? If it turns out to be the one. Will it be shared? Will it be made available well, globally? Well, I don't want to malign our Chinese friends, but they're probably like the US, aren't they? They'll retain it for themselves. You'd imagine first, you never know, because it is an interesting country, isn't it? But certainly the scientists there are very eminent, and the ones on that science paper are superb people, and they will want to share it as widely as possible, obviously, you see. So there'll be a bit of pressure there. It'll all be about production. If that's the one that wins the race, you got to ramp up a billion doses very quickly then, you see. I suspect they're making it already, just in case this actually works out. So we'll see. But yeah. it's, a, it's a good question. Like, the other thing to watch for, Pat, is it's a single lab doing these studies. Now, whenever we see that in science, we go, oh, that's nice. Can a different lab reproduce it just to make sure it's correct? Because there can be differences yeah. between labs. But still, very eminent group. And science would not be publishing this mm-hmm. paper. It's unlikely they would have put it out there, you know, unless they felt there was something in this. So we're, we're, we're reasonably happy with that one. Would it be right in suggesting that if someone comes up with a vaccine that works, that it's likely to be shared globally initially, probably for free, at you know, production cost plus a small margin, but thereafter, whoever owns the patent, if you like, you know, for future inoculations will charge uh, and yeah, charge yeah. appropriately? That's right. Yeah, that that I mean, Moderna's as we just discussed, Pat. Moderna's value went up twenty percent in a, in an hour or something as a company. You see, so people have to think there is money to be made out of this. There has to be, hasn't there? They sometimes think that maybe if Moderna gets there with their vaccine, other products might get more credibility. You know, and they might sell those mm-hmm. at a higher price. So it's not the business model is interesting, isn't it? At the moment, though, the the push will be to make this vaccine available to everybody as a cheap as as cheaply as possible. Governments will pay for these vaccines, basically, won't they? Because you're liberating yeah. your economy again in so many ways so but it's a complicated one we don't know how the the business part of this vaccines don't make a huge amount of money for companies interesting anyway you know even, even the vaccines we take every day aren't a big profit earner for companies so it's a strange world the commercial world of vaccines must be said one of my listeners who signs off as cheeky charlie he's very disappointed in the oxford result with the monkeys he said the vaccine monkey test oh luke just when i thought i had immunity and could get away with acting the monkey <laughs> oh, very good. Yes, say, yeah. oh, no, let's, let's not be too, uh, uh, do them down. It was a great effort by Oxford, Pat. It was very fast. They got into those monkeys and they did yeah. see an effect. So so we wouldn't give them that, not the back of the class yeah. yet. Now, the, the technology they're using, this viral vectoring, uh, I mean, they could use a different uh, starting point still using the technology, the viral vectoring. So, as you say, we'll give them 8 out of 10, but not 10 out of 10 yet. Yeah. Now, the, my headline this morning was uh, something prompted by um, you, which was that the common cold, which is a coronavirus, may have some role in protecting people. This is a striking paper, and this came out in the big immunology journal. And it's my job to, to read these papers and then try and explain them. It's, it's quite hard going, even for an immunologist. But 
really impressive paper, Pat. And myself and Kingston Mills, who's my great colleague, uh, we had a great chat about this. Yes, I, I always ask him, what do you make of this? And he'll give his opinion. He thinks this is great. He's, he's a kind of a glass half empty kind of scientist. So when he says it's good, it must be. So it's a really important paper. So what they found was, um, first of all, the good news again on this paper was people who have who've had the virus, they make a lot of what are called T cells. Now, T cells are the second part of the immune system that's really important. Antibodies, we all know what those are now, don't we? So you need to get an antibody response, but you also need a T cell response. And the T cells kind of promote antibodies that are part of that world, but they can also kill virally infected cells. They're like the assassins of the immune system, if you like, and they can kill a cell that's got a virus inside. And lo and behold, these people with COVID-2, 100% of them had these T cells, which is fantastic. So that means you can get this T-cell response to the virus. And that was good. I mean, we, we thought that would be the case, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, but secondly, and incredibly, they had samples from 2015. Now, this is long before COVID-2 ever came out. And lo and behold, these people had T-cells to COVID-2 as well. Now, you might wonder, how can that be? It must be because they've had the common cold and there's things shared between the common cold and COVID-2. They're all in the same family. You see the seven coronaviruses, COVID-2 is one. There's four of them caused the common cold. So they must have had structures in them, the cold virus that COVID-2 has. And lo and behold, the T cell can recognize either the cold or COVID-2. In other words, it's what, it's what they call shared epitopes is the horrible name for this. Yeah. And that's very interesting because that means having the common cold, you might get, it's a bit like BCG in a way, remember as we discussed before, mm -hmm. you've got the common cold, then you get the, the, the COVID-2 and lo and behold, you've got a T cell response already there because you've had the common cold before. So it's a very interesting uh, discovery really. So, so if we can all get the common cold, uh, which we all do from time to time, that it would give us at least a temporary protection against COVID-2, in theory. Yeah, in incredibly, that's one possibility. Now, the, the, there's a couple of days, the usual dreaded caveats, as you know, they didn't have a huge T-cell response. They had maybe a third of what you'd see than if you'd had COVID-2. Uh, but there's still some T-cells there, which is good. It's not clear if they're protective or not, I suppose, is one question we would have. Um, but certainly, yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is all over the, the, the immunology uh, tom-toms yesterday was, mm. will the common cold protect against this virus? Now, now remember, children had come to the fore. And we've always thought the reason why children might be less susceptible, they've had loads of colds in the past six months, you see. So maybe having the common cold has given them a T-cell response, and those T-cells yeah. now fight COVID-2. So that may be one explanation why children yeah. are having a less severe be disease. Because the kind of description of a child at school is a child with a snotty nose. I mean, they yeah. just get colds all the time and they pass them around the, the classroom like wildfire. So if they've all had these, and maybe several yeah. of them, they're developing these. these. Anyway, that's a theory. And um, Could therefore, and this is a, a big leap, could the common cold virus be used as a vaccine? Well, this now, Pat, you see, that's exactly what's happening. I mean, on the back of this paper, great immunologist, by the way, let's name them, Pat. I got Alessandro Setti, who we all know. He's a really famous T-cell biologist in Kingston, knows him very well. Uh, he's saying, now, why not give people the cold? Now, can you believe it? Or at least it is paper they speculate on this. Uh, so you could give someone a cold. Yeah, and remember, colds are very benign. You see, Pat, the, 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 the seven viruses, as I said, in the coronavirus family, maybe 5,000 years ago, some cold viruses were severe and they mutated into a less severe form. And that's what we have with us today, you know. So it's a very benign disease, isn't it, a common cold? So people are now considering giving people the common cold and then maybe seeing if that offers some protection. That's the next step in this uh, in this uh, in this project. I guess more importantly, though, I think that that's a bit of overreach at the moment because it's still not clear if there's enough T cells there to protect you. So it's still speculative. But the good part of this is you do get a strong T cell response 
to COVID-2. And you need a T-cell response for a vaccine to work. The vaccines that haven't worked in the past often don't give that T-cell response. So the fact that naturally you get a big T-cell response is, is a good predictor for vaccine efficacy. Now, another thing you wanted to talk about, a discovery, uh, biomarkers that will predict the severity of the disease you're going to endure. Yeah, that's right. So this is on Friday, a big publication again in Nature, which is the big journal we love because that's you know number one in the world. Uh, what they're doing there, they're trying to figure out, can you predict what's going to happen to a patient? I mean, this happens in many diseases, of course, and you try and diagnose them. And if there's certain markers there, you might predict the course of the disease. Now, with this one, they're trying to figure out someone comes to hospital, they've got COVID-19. Can you take a blood sample and then see what's in the blood and then figure out what's going to happen to that patient? Because it might have a mild course. You might treat them differently. If you if you see something that's worrying, then you might have a more careful analysis of that patient and look after them in different ways. And they use machine yeah. learning. They got robots involved, artificial intelligence. They got 485 Chinese patients. They measured loads of stuff in their blood. And this robot, if you like, uh, measured all these different things over time. So it's quite complicated because you end up with an equation algorithm at the end. And the computer or whatever spat out three things, a thing called LDH, a thing called CRP, and also, again, the lymphocyte count, getting back to my T cells. And if if your T cells fell a lot, if you had high levels of LDH and high CRP, that gave 90% accuracy at predicting a very difficult disease course. Isn't that amazing? So now they're saying we can use these three things now, measure them as soon as the patient hits the ward, if you like, and now we know oh, this is going to be a severe patient and let's treat them very, very aggressively, you know, with drugs or with treatments and so on. Yeah. So it's a very good predictor. I think it's a very good predictor of a difficult course. And of course, this is great for doctors, Pat, because their mission is to save lives. If we could just save people from dying, this problem would be less, obviously, less of a worry for us all. So, yeah. so they're going to use these three biomarkers now. They're called biomarkers. That's the word we use as a way to manage patients. And a very impressive paper, really. Uh, and the other paper uh, reveals where people are likely to contract uh, COVID-2, yeah. the, 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 the environments in which they're likely to become infected. This is a really important one, Pat, to be honest. Now, now you see, they've, they've loads of information from different countries now, and it's the, it's the tracing business. Where does someone get infected? Under what situation? And the data's got much better because there's like tens of thousands of people assessed now. So your conclusion is probably going to be right. And I think it's really important, this, Pat. So the main, it looks like the main place this virus spreads is mass gatherings. Now, we kind of knew already there was a hint of this, as you know, from other studies, but this has now been confirmed. So it's things like religious gatherings, sporting events, anywhere there's an awful lot of people, especially indoors, and if they're shouting and roaring, but that's a big predictor, by the way, because the shouting, roaring releases more virus, and that's been confirmed. Now, one one sad one, Pat, is choirs. That's become very clear. Choirs are really bad for spreading the virus. And just one little thing, someone got onto me. People are, are emailing me a lot, and I'm always happy to try and answer them. Mary Amond O'Brien, who's a choir director, was onto me begging me, saying, can we bring our choir back together? I said, no. She said, can you invent a mask for us that you can use in a choir? Now, I don't know how you put a mask on in a choir, Pat, but she was saying, look, choirs are so important for people, obviously for their mental health and mm. children love choirs. And I'm wondering, anybody listening, Pat, could you invent a mask with a microphone on the inside and the speaker outside, maybe something crazy like that. But, but choirs yeah. are, 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 are places where they spread. So people, they pick it up in that environment and then they go home or they go back to their workplace and spread it. You know what I mean? So in other words, the transmission is happening from these highly crowded places. Uh, pubs are bad, Pat. There were 77 cases in a single pub in New York, for instance. You know, So now we know it's mass gatherings are where this happens, and then it spreads into the workplace or into the home from there. So it's quite an important study, isn't it? I think that really defines yeah. where you might catch it. 
That was Professor Luke O'Neill of Trinity College Dublin speaking with Pat Kenny on Wednesday morning. Welcome back to Weekly Digest on News Talk. I'm Shane Beatty. Earlier this week, Ivan Yates spoke to Fiona Hanrahan, Director of Midwifery and Nursing at the Rotunda Hospital, and Laura Flynn, a new mother who went through labour, unsure if she has COVID or not. It went very well. It did. It went very well. He's doing great. And uh, no sleep? No, absolutely no sleep. Right. And are you feeding James yourself? I am feeding James myself. Right. And yes. how old are the other ones? My eldest son is three and a half and my daughter is one and a half. Ah, so we're here. very busy. Ah, here. Now, do you know what's causing the problem? <laughs> Congratulations. Too much time at home. All right. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. All right. We'll, we'll come back to your, your case history and what it was like in relation to all the restrictions, both in hospital and uh, as an outpatient. But, uh, Fiona, first of all, maybe you could tell us some of the preparations uh, that took place at the start of the lockdown because we'd, we'd heard from many of the acute uh, hospital services how there was a clear delineation, a division between a COVID and a non-COVID route to care insofar as that there would be no crossover, no contamination. What was the plan originally? Yeah, sure. Hi, good afternoon, uh, Ivan, and hi, Laura. Congratulations on your your baby. Um, So the first thing to say, I suppose, is that the Rotunda Hospital, the buildings are 263 years old. So these buildings have withstood world wars and the flu of 1918. So we've, we've been around this block a little bit. And in fact, we had some, I suppose, pre-preparation because I don't know whether you remember during the Zika virus and the Ebola crisis that we've always had a kind of, a, I suppose, a consideration that there could be any uh, pandemic coming our way. Um, so we started our preparation for this in February this year, actually. We had our first planning meeting in the hospital on the 18th of February um, given our unique situation as the busiest maternity hospital in the country and also the fact that we're a demand-led service, we can't you know, close down and say, OK, we're not taking any, any women in here to have their babies. Um, so our first planning meeting was first, before the first case in Ireland. Um, so I think we were a little bit ahead of ourselves in that way, which was great because it gave us a bit more time to consider what we needed to do. So what we looked at, um, Ivan, was a, a sort of number of pathways um, because you'd have some women that would come to you who you knew had been diagnosed with COVID. You'd have some women that would come to you with symptoms but had had no testing done, but s- symptoms that would suggest they had COVID. And then we'd have some women coming to us where they'd been in contact with a confirmed case and been advised to self-isolate, but they still have a pregnancy to look after. So we kind of used a... Um, and then patients who've no contact, no symptoms, family well, all well. So we kind of had like a traffic light system for, for, for women coming in here where we put them on a pathway, and that's where we manage their care that way. Um, we did um, decide to sort of set up a hospital within the hospital. So we, we, we found an area in the hospital, and um, we, we um, did some renovations on the area to make it uh, suitable for uh, women coming in in labour, where we could care for them safely in labour. So we took a, a room in one of the oldest parts of the buildings and put in gases and all the bits and pieces to um, make it safe to look after women in labour there. And we had sort of a dedicated, if you want to say, a COVID zone. Um, the main issue for women who are COVID positive or symptomatic is they have to be in a single room and isolated. And of course, there's only a limited number of single rooms in any hospital. So we had to identify single rooms where you had ensuite facilities as well, because obviously women have to have an ensuite when they're in a single room. Then we looked at the care for the patients as well, coming in here to make sure that they would be safe and that the babies would be safe. 
And we also looked at the care requirements for staff because obviously in a building like this, social distancing is very challenging because our corridors are old. You know, if you were building a hospital now, you'd have massive wide corridors with huge big rooms and that is not the case um, when this hospital was built in 1757. So. And, and, and what about, that's for the inpatient and the delivery. Yeah. But as you know, there are various different stages through the sure. trimesters and scans and you go to meet your outpatient appointment for your consultant and you get your checkups before you get to the delivery stage. Like we've heard, you know, routinely oncology, cardiac and all sorts of elective treatments that there's been kind of a wholesale... Yes. Uh, abandonment's a bit strong but cancellation of of appointments how was it business as usual for that or were there virtual consultations or how did you do that yeah a bit of both I mean obviously you know women who are pregnant can't put a hold on the pregnancy so antenatal care is absolutely vitally important so one of our first things to do was to reassure women that they had to have their care and to come to us for their appointments but actually we've made some changes in a very short time frame that we will keep when this crisis passes, because we've realized that you can do, you know, I don't know whether you remember when you had your own children, Mm -hmm. there's a thing called a booking visit, which is your first visit with the midwife and doctor and scan and blood tests. So a woman comes in around maybe 10, 12 weeks and has her first visit. Generally in a hospital, that takes a number of hours as you wait to see each professional along the way. So what we're doing now is women who are coming for the booking visit are having a phone consultation first, or we're using actually, it's kind of um, Zoom or Microsoft meetings, those kind of technology ones. So we're saying to the women, look, we're going to call you, make sure you're somewhere you can talk to us privately. And we literally go through their whole history over the phone. Um, And then when they come in, the midwife who's met, who spoke to them on the phone will meet them and just confirm the details, blood test, scan, out. So we have taken what would have taken traditionally maybe one and a half to two hours and paired it right down to maybe 15 minutes in the hospital. And that's been that's been revolutionary here. It's made a huge difference. And also what we've done, antenatal visits can't be done obviously remotely because you've got to palpate the baby to make sure the baby is growing. Um, But we have put a lot of our services, like our diabetic services, our self-monitoring at home. So women with diabetes, we've given them glucose monitors and they're reporting their bloods into us. And women with hypertensive diseases that are not related to the pregnancy as such, so ongoing hypertension problems, we're giving them monitors and they're monitoring at home and ringing us in. So I think... The women would say they feel very safe in our care here. Our waiting rooms are fairly empty. We, ha- we try and keep the waiting rooms sort of where there's distance between patients sitting there, and we try and not have people waiting long to be seen. We did have to curtail and cancel a lot of our gynae services, and that's the biggest hit that we've taken here. But last week we started reintroducing gynae services again. So we, we sort of ramped up our, um, our midwifery and obstetric services and sort of cancelled a lot of gynae, but now we're, we're solely reintroducing gynae. So I think we're in a good right. place, and I hope the patients have felt very safe. Okay. We also have a we also have very busy um, outline clinics in nine um, health centres around the city. So we provide antenatal care local to where the women live. So in Swords, Blanchestown, Coolock, we've we've nine clinics running. So that's been really successful as well. Okay, well that was the plan. That was the protocol, uh, yeah. and that was supposed uh, how it was supposed to work. Um, so Laura Flynn, you had your baby James in the rotunda. How was it for you? Um, hi, Ivan, and, and uh, thanks for having me. Um, yes, I had him in the rotunda on the 4th um, of April. And uh, I suppose my real experience kind of begins on the run up to my due date, because before that I was taking part in um, a community midwife scheme. So a lot of my checkups would have been done in my local health centre. So I wasn't in the rotunda. And um, my my scans and stuff that you spoke of were kind of pre pre-COVID so 
um, the real excitement kind of started close to my due date, which would have been the 29th of March. And um, I had to attend a clinic, you know, a regular a regular clinic in the rotunda and I had a cough. I developed kind of a little bit of a head cold. So um, I phoned in and, and I said, you know, I have this cough, I have a head cold and what should I do? So I was advised not to attend and to get a COVID test done, which I I did. Um, so my clinic that I had been supposed to attend was uh, postponed. So when I did attend in for that clinic, eventually, uh, the new traffic light system uh, that Fiona mentioned there had come into practice. So I was um, in the Amber Clinic, I believe it was called. And I think that was the main difference that I really, really noticed from having been in the hospital with previous babies was that when I arrived, you know, you're greeted at the door, you're asked all these questions and, you know, clean your hands and all the rest. And um, I was given a mask to wear. And when I went into the uh, to attend the clinic, there was absolutely nobody else there, which anybody who's been in the rotunda will tell you is strange, un- it, which is completely strange and completely unusual. Yeah. So it was literally absolutely nobody else there. Um, so it was just myself. Uh, I went into a room and I waited and I was met with my uh, consultant for my checkup and who was fully gowned up and uh, full PPE on. But other Sorry, than that, had you the, got the result of your COVID test at this stage? No, I hadn't. No. How long were you waiting for that? I was waiting for just to two, two full weeks. I had to wait. Right, that wasn't really helpful insofar as not only for yourself, Laura, but for the people treating you. They didn't. They had to presume you had it. Absolutely, and I mean, you you can really feel for the staff because yeah. the the PP situation Laura, is. You, how many weeks? How long before your baby was born did that happen? Because things have changed so rapidly. Would that would that have been in March at some stage? Do you think it was? Yeah, yeah. that was the end of March. So, yeah, because yeah. what we were doing now is we're because of the delay in getting results back. We started now providing testing for all the women that are pregnant in our catchment area. I suppose nobody knew what the impact would be, and especially for pregnant women. So initially, women in pregnancy were going through the HSE testing, but um, probably around, I can't remember what day, at the end of March, we said, look, it would have been we... that. It was the same week, yeah, in fact, so, Fiona, absolutely. Yeah, that we you're started, right. yeah, we turned on testing here for anyone who was pregnant and um, had symptoms because we could turn the results around in less than 24 hours. So I'm sorry, you probably were just outside the window of that starting, I would think. Yes, okay, I had well, just well, been so tested then, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you felt uh, the, the labour pains and the waters broke, just tell us about the delivery, Laura. Um, well, I was still treated as if I potentially had COVID-19 because I hadn't received my results. So I um, had been well prepped on what to do. I had to phone into the hospital, just let them know I was coming and they'd be ready to receive me. So they were, you know, kind of waiting for me at the front door and I came in um <clears throat> by myself and ev- so everybody who dealt with me from that stage on was in full PPE so i was um checked in and i was taken up to the delivery suite and you know delivery suites are extremely warm places so you really really start to feel for the midwives and they're in full PPE gear and the heat is shocking um but other than that, they really just tried to carry on as normal, you know. The, but the, I take it for your two previous babies that your husband or partner was with you, the, uh, the father. Yeah. Or, or he wasn't allowed yeah. in. That was a big change. He wasn't allowed in. 
So um, because I I had had nearly two weeks from when I had been tested, there was a little bit of a grey area that my two weeks kind of were up and that my partner might be allowed in. Um, so after I was admitted, he was kind of waiting outside to sort of get the final word of whether he would or wouldn't be allowed in. Um, so the decision was made anyway that he wasn't allowed in, um, which, of course, was a shame. But really, under the circumstances, you have to just, you know, persevere. And, and, and was the delivery straightforward? It was straightforward. But of course, as you're saying, it was very unusual because the midwives were all wearing PPE. And when it came to the, the the final part of the delivery of the baby, I also had to wear a mask, which is not ideal under the circumstances. That mm. could well be different now. So, so um, you went through the entire delivery not knowing if you were a confirmed case of COVID or not. Absolutely, and I actually got the text to say it was negative the following morning. Right, like absolutely, like yeah. Fiona, you know, throughout this whole situation and saga. You know, like, I, I mean, we're told now it's two days, three days. I know, you know, people in Enniscorthy were testing a hospital 10 days ago and they still haven't been told the result. I mean, like, there's a, I find all over the place, there's a hell of a difference between yeah. what we're told is the story on testing and people's personal narratives yeah. and stories. And I think that's why we took the testing um, internally here, that any woman who's pregnant now, <clears throat> booked in the Rotunda, who has symptoms should ring us and then we'll get them tested the following day test is done in our lab and we get the results back because it's to our benefit to know as well so we Absolutely. get back within 12 hours yeah I think I think I mean the HSC I mean this situation has happened so quickly and everything has changed very quickly so even even since Laura had her baby things have changed here so for example at the moment if we have a woman coming in to have her baby who is COVID positive we're trying to look now if we can have the partner there even for the end of the labour or you know it's that piece of protecting mm. your staff and c- can no, I ask no you, one Fiona? Wants to separate families. You know, it's a terrible thing to have to happen. That, that is, you know, yeah, really that, is. that is desperate. But I mean, but the 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 question I, I want to ask you is because you know when we see the daily figures and we even hear the clusters, you know, we have had cases of people who did not have COVID or certainly no symptoms or confirmation of COVID and then developed it in hospital. And my question to you is, can you say across the maternity service nationally whether there's been any positive COVID expectant mothers, COVID babies or anything, or whether this has all been a theoretical uh, situation? Well, certainly I can only speak for the Rotunda Hospital. Um, We have had no babies that have contracted COVID. Um, which is really good news, as you can imagine, when we have babies born here, or you know, up to 25 to 30 babies a day here. Um, I think we've had women who have been confirmed community COVID positive. Um, it's really re- reassuring at the moment. The numbers are very low, um, but that's with the big restrictions. We'll see the changes coming now as they lift the restrictions. So we're now planning for the next three, four, six, eight, twelve weeks as to what it might look like. You're trying to model up the numbers. So if we have, you know, it's more, it's the same as kind of the ICU thing. When the curve is flattened, we can look after one woman at a time coming in with COVID or two, <clears throat> but bring that to four, and that's where you're looking at the, the, the challenges here with our space. Um, I mean, if we had one woman a day coming in COVID positive, there's no reason a partner couldn't be with her, but we were modelling on six, eight, ten. We had no idea what we were dealing with. That was the real challenge of this. And the other big challenge, Ivan, with this, um, this condition is that there isn't one symptom that everybody has. So not every woman gets a high temperature, not every patient gets a sore throat, some people just get myalgia. So you can't even write down the symptoms and say, aha, you tick off, you have it, you know. So 
there's a lot of presumption that anybody who presents with anything respiratory is likely this COVID, particularly this time of year. And um, we're coming out of the seasonal flu, flu area. So now, you know, anyone coming in with a cough, cold, whatever, it's likely to be COVID. But we just don't know. So the important thing is to turn around testing quickly. What we're also doing here, um, and this again is only in the last couple of weeks, if a woman presents in labour that we didn't know about with symptoms, we can do this called gene expert test and get the result back within two hours. So that's changed the whole face of, the, of our management here, that if a woman comes in in labour with symptoms like Laura would have had, she can be tested now on the arrival in the hospital and get the result back in two hours. And that means you change her care, her partner can come in and put her back on the green pathway again. That was Laura Flynn and Fiona Hanrahan, Director of Midwifery and Nursing at the Rotunda, speaking to Ivan on Tuesday. Next week, we'll learn more about testing now that the case definition is as broad as it's ever been and more and more people get swabbed for the virus. We'll also hopefully hear more about measures that the National Public Health Emergency Team expects to take to help children struggling with some of the restrictions. As always, we'll continue to bring you updates as they happen here on News Talk, but be sure to subscribe to this podcast on the Go Loud app or wherever you get your podcasts from, and you can submit your questions or comments to covidquestions at newstalk.com. From me, Shane Beatty, until next week, bye-bye and take care.